let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. We thank you for the privilege you've given us to come before you, to come together in fellowship, to come to your word and to consider it and to study it. We might know you, the only true God, through, uh, through the consideration of your son whom you sent, who is your interpreter, who has made you known to us, who is our life and our salvation. So we pray, O oh Lord, as we come to your word and consider the word, we pray that you would increase our faith, strengthen our faith, cause us to uh, trust more fully uh, in the grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're thinking about Christology, and um, this, of course, can be reduced to two subject headings. When we talk about Christology, we're talking about the person of Christ, and we're talking about the work of Christ. The person of Christ really being the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? What do you say of him? And the work of Christ being uh, an answer to the question, what did he do? What is the nature of his work? What did he accomplish for our sake in going to the cross and suffering for our sake in dying and being buried and being raised and ascending to the right hand of the Father? So we're considering the person of Christ and we're considering the work of Christ. And I want to begin by looking at um, some, uh, some portions of the Athanasian Creed and also what's called the Chalcedonian Definition, not because these documents represent um, uh, the origin of our belief about Christ. I, I do want to uh, labor to show that what the truths we find in these documents arise out of Scripture, but because these are a helpful summary of the teaching of Scripture concerning the person and work of Christ. So I'm actually going to begin about halfway through the Athanasian Creed in line 29. And here this creed reads, But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the, right, at the Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. And as I've said in, in previous uh, weeks, I think that phrase, he descended to hell, may be better rendered, um, he descended to the dead, as, as, a, as a reference to his burial. Um, 
and then there's of course debates about what takes place between Friday and Sunday but um, we need not uh, go back into the, that uh, discussion again tonight but in any case what we have there is a very clear statement concerning the person of Christ and his work concerning the fact that we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man that there's not in his in this union of of a divine nature and a human nature a blending of the natures but there's no division of the nature there's not a confusion of the nature there's not a mixing there's not a transformation so that he ceases to be divine and becomes man no he is fully God and fully man uh, he has always been fully God but in the incarnation he becomes fully man and that is what is uh, is represented here in the in this particular creed we see the same kind of thing in what's called the Chalcedonian definition this statement it's not not a creed it's, it's, it's called a definition because it was written down in order to provide further clarity to the Nicene Creed in the year 451 AD is when this was published and it's very short and succinct and here's what it says following the saintly fathers we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same son our Lord Jesus Christ the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through their union. But rather, the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one, and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the Creed of the Fathers handed it down to us. So that's the Chalcedonian definition, and um, it says very much the same thing as the Athanasian Creed. It does clarify some of the language of the Nicene Creed. It does express clearly, I think, and succinctly the nature of what we believe concerning the person of Christ and um, his work uh, to some extent. So in any case, I do want to go uh, to Scripture and go back to John chapter 1 and show again and, and work to show that this confession, that the, this definition and the creed, they both arise out of Scripture. So let me invite you to turn there to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in the first 18 verses reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, the, one of the claims I'm making is that John articulates in his prologue and his, what we read in the Athanasian Creed and what we read in the Chalcedonian definition, namely that Jesus Christ in his person is the eternal Son of God who in the course of time became incarnate as a man. That he is God the Son incarnate. And he also points forward to his work which he doesn't clearly articulate in the prologue itself as a work of atoning sacrifice, but he does articulate it as a work of both revelation and redemption, a work of revelation and redemption. And we're going to see a little bit of that tonight as well. But I want to begin with a question, a simple question. What exactly is the incarnation? We read it in the creed, but let me try to state it with, a, with some clarity. Here, when we speak about the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of our Lord, we're speaking about the only begotten Son of God taking to himself human flesh in order to make God known to man and to reconcile man to God. Let me say that again. It's the only begotten Son of God taking to himself human flesh in order to make God known to man and to reconcile man to God. If you think about where we've been in previous weeks as we were studying the doctrine of the Trinity, we have this picture of God that, uh, uh, we have this understanding of God that is as being triune, being eternally existent as one being in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what do we say then of the Son when we consider the historical coming of the Son in history? How does that affect our understanding of his person? When we think statically, uh, outside of history, within a, in, in, you know, in the paradigm of eternity, we think of God as triune and we think of the eternal Son. We think of one who is identical to the Father in his essence, who is the exact imprint of his nature, and yet is distinguished from the Father by a relation of origin. That is, he is begotten of the Father or from the Father. And there we distinguish begottenness from being made. Right? He's not begotten the, the way that uh, Matt was begotten of his father or that, the way that Philip is begotten of Matt. No, he is eternally begotten, that this is a relationship that always has been and always will be. We don't say much more than that. We simply express that that is the teaching of Scripture, and, um, and we, so we believe it. He is the only begotten Son of God. But, of course, in the course of time, he took to himself a human flesh, uh, human nature, human flesh. There's something that changes, not in the divine nature, 
Nothing about the divine nature changes. Nothing about, uh, about God's nature changes. God is, uh, is not subject to change. He cannot change. But something changes. Namely that God takes to himself, God the Son takes to himself a human nature. And nothing about that uh, corrupts or changes or transfers or, or transforms the divine nature. That's what we're talking about when we speak about the incarnation. God the Son taking to himself human flesh, human nature, in order to make God known to man and to reconcile man to God. That's what we're seeing John speak about here in the prologue to John's gospel. We, last week when we looked at the first uh, eight or so verses of, of this passage, we noted how John really presents um, the word as divine. And we, we looked at all the ways in which he shows that. He shows him to be uh, both uh, the one who is with God and the one who is at the same time God. So when we think in that bigger picture of uh, what we've understood of the doctrine of the Trinity, this makes perfect sense. When we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there is that distinction of persons. And now we have a, uh, um, we have a framework from which to understand how it's possible that this one who's called the Word can both be God and be with God. He shares in that self-same nature, and uh, at the same time he is distinct from the Father, he is distinct from the Spirit in his person. So we saw last week uh, further that not only is he both God and with God at the same time, we see his eternality, that he is the one who's in the beginning, that he is the one through whom all things were created, yet he himself is not made. He's not categorized under that category of those things which were made. They were all made through him, and apart from him nothing that has been made was made. And uh, we, you know, we, we recognize that it would be a logical impossibility for, the, uh, for, for one to make himself. So here we have a, uh, an indication of, of his eternality, the fact that he's not a created being. He's an eternal, self-existing, self-existent being. And we see further that he shares in that when we when we talk about him sharing in the self-same nature as God, we you know one of those one aspect of that is um, that God is self-existent, that He has life in Himself. And here we see of the Word, in Him was life, and life was the light of men. So last week, just to say, uh, come back and put a point on it, we saw very clearly that this one who John begins uh, by calling the word and then refers to as the life and the light, he is God. He is fully God. But as we considered the testimony of John, as we started to look at John the Baptist and and, and, um, the Apostle John's introduction of John the Baptist, we see that he begins to bear witness about one who he calls the light. There was a man in verse 6 sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John is very careful that we should not think this other John is himself the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He goes on in verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So we see an indication of something is going to happen. Something is, is happening. The one who is the word, the one who is the light, is coming into the world. We naturally wonder, what does that coming constitute? What will it be like? 
What does it mean? He goes on in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So we, we see clearly that we're, we're still talking about this one who's called the world, through whom all things were made. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So there's an there's introduction of irony, is that this one who make the, is the maker of the world, not recognized as he comes into the world. He even comes to his own. And John's, these, these ideas are, John is going to unfold them across the gospel. We're going to consider them in future weeks. Um, but he's going to come to his own. And so who is his own? What does that mean? We'll see that it, it's a reference to his, uh, his people according to the flesh. He's born a Jew, and he comes to the Jewish people. And yet, in coming to his own, even his own people do not receive him. But then John turns his attention to those who do receive him, to all who did receive him, who believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is an interesting idea, and I, I made the case last week, or I made the point last week, and I want to make it again, that we see very much the same truth conveyed in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, in verses 4 uh, and following, the Apostle Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And there Paul, he uses slightly different language to convey the same concept. Here the language is of adoption. Under John, it's that of being a child of God. The, having the authority to become a child of God. But conceptually, it's the same. And it's this extraordinary um, truth. When I said that the incarnation, when I gave the definition of the incarnation, and I spoke of it in terms of revelation and redemption, two works that Christ does, revelation and redemption. Here we see something of the redeeming work of Christ, that he came as the one who is the Son of God. He became a son of man, so that those who are born as the children of man might become children of God. In Paul's language, it's through adoption. In John's language, it's that of receiving authority to become children of God. But the same concept is at play. So, looking then, as before we look more deeply at verses 14 through 18, we are clearly seeing a picture of one who is coming into the world, and we haven't yet looked at the peculiar nature of that coming, what, it, what exactly does it mean, but one who's coming into the world to accomplish a work of redemption. Say a th a thing, something about the importance of this confession. Why is it so important to talk about this and, and to make this point again and again, um, to publish this in a recording? Um, we'll, be si we'll be making the same um, argument next week uh, and the week after, simply rather than offering a new argument, tr trying to unfold more fully how this one thing is rooted in Scripture. If you recall from the language of the Athanasian Creed, uh, it said something to the effect that there's no salvation apart from this confession. And it's striking when you read that. You say, oh, 
I need to hold to this creed in order to be saved. Is that what you're claiming? And it sounds maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, kind of a big of a big claim, a little bit too much to say. But I do want to show you that that's the case uh, from Scripture. First John, you'll remember as we went through First John in the evenings. First John two, verse twenty-two, and following. John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He's not speaking of the, the final climactic Antichrist simp only, but all those who fall under his, uh, uh, in his same character. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. So we see the uh, clear importance of having a right confession of the Son. We, we cannot say that, well, I don't believe in the Son, but I believe in the Father. The two things are uh, to, to, to deny the Son is to deny the Father, um, to, to deny the Father is to deny the Son. It goes uh, both ways. It's a, you, you, can't, you can't have one claim without the other. We see it again more clearly in 1 John chapter 4, specifically with respect to the incarnation. John takes up this idea of these false spirits, and in the same context we'll make reference to the, anti, to the spirit of Antichrist. He writes this in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is not imagining a scenario where we hear voices in our head. No, he's, he's saying test uh, those, uh, those people who purport to represent God, the pur- those who purport to represent true belief. They are, uh, they are moved by either the spirit of God or by the spirit of Antichrist. And you can test that by the, what they're teaching and what they're confessing. And here it is. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so you see that confession becomes really crucial. The person who's denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. There's all sorts of ways that people have done that in history. There are ways that people do that now. The person who makes that denial is not of God. They are not holding fast to the uh, true faith that we received from the beginning that has been handed down over the course of centuries. And they do not have in themselves eternal life. So it's a very weighty subject. It's a very important subject. It's very important that we get this right. Just some examples of that. And if you think back to John's day, John... Um, was a bit earlier than uh, the full, a full robust Gnostic um, uh, heresy, but it would uh, very shortly follow the idea of Gnosticism. And uh, Gnosticism is a wild, wild uh, a philosophy. If you were to read it, you would not be sure what you're reading. You'd think you're reading some kind of science fiction. Uh, but if you, if you do have an interest, uh, the book by Irenaeus of Lyon against heresies unfolds the, uh, the first two uh, parts of that book unfolds uh, what it is the Gnostics believe and how they uh, attempt to root their philosophy in scripture. Uh, I don't plan to go into that tonight. 
except to say that it did entail denials of the person of Christ as we understand it from Scripture. And the, the interesting thing is they rooted those denials, they rooted their false teaching in various selective, uh, selectively um, chosen texts of Scripture, but always misused, always misused apart from their context. The way Irenaeus would put it is they ignored the order and connection of Scripture. That is the way which Scripture fits together and the way that it flows and the way that it, it unfolds. Um, you know, so f just as an example of the oddities of it all. They would uh, key on the age of Christ during his ministry. And they would, they would find some symbolic meaning in the number of years that he lived prior to entering ministry and the number of years in which he engaged in ministry. And then from that, discern that there was some kind of secret code, secret idea that was communicated through that number of years. It was um, and nothing to do with what Scripture is actually teaching. So that's an early way in which people denied Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. They... Um, they did not regard him, you know, in some ways they didn't regard him as uh, really truly man. Maybe there are all kinds of variations, but maybe it was, uh, uh, um, you know, like a mirage or like a, like a, uh, a trick of some sort. Or they would deny that he was really and truly fully God. That he was really equal with the Father. Uh, and there are many other forms of that uh, in the early church that you can see. In our own day, uh, the most well-known, you'd think of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Jesus is fully God, that he is the, um, the supreme, that he is equal with, with and one with the Father. They would say that he himself is a created being. Um, Mormons have their own denials. Think of Muslims who deny that they, they believe Jesus is a prophet, a great prophet even, but they deny that he really is truly God. So they say, they, they might say, well, yeah, he is in the flesh, but the idea that he came in the flesh, that language would be peculiar to them. What do you mean he came in the flesh? He's just, they would say he's just a man. We're saying something quite different. We're saying that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, through whom all things came into being, as John has it, First John, I'm sorry, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last week I alluded to the fact that, I, that, uh, that language only son from the father is probably best uh, rendered only begotten son. There's been some debates over the years of uh, whether the idea is one of uniqueness or one of uh, uh, indicating begottenness. And um, the pendulum for a time shifted to the idea of uniqueness, but in recent years it has uh, most, I think, uh, many are coming to agree that it should be the old traditional rendering of the King James should be what we adopt, that only begotten does better render the idea. That unique begottenness of, uh, of the Son, that he has this unique relationship to the Father as the one who is eternally begotten of him. And in that begottenness, in, in, in his becoming flesh, and dwelling among us, the, the language is literally pitched his tent among us or, or tabernacled among us. It has that idea of he, you know, hearkening back to the Old Testament tabernacle where God's glory dwelt in the midst of his people. Here the idea is similar that it's not in a tent anymore, but it was in the person of Christ that the glory of God dwelt in the midst of his people. And John says, we, referring to himself and the other eyewitnesses, we have seen his glory. We have witnessed his glory. 
And so that he presents himself and those other eyewitnesses as those who are uniquely qualified to bear witness that this is the truth. They're not making an argument based on some robust philosophical uh, reasoning. They're making an argument based on eyewitness testimony. We've seen his glory. And it was the glory, the self-same glory of the Father. The, the kind that, of glory that is only proper to the, the only begotten Son from the Father. And that glory is supremely characterized by grace and truth. It's full of grace and truth. He says, he goes on in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We think about John's peculiar witness. We're going to see that, that same kind of language in, uh, r later in chapter 1 as we consider John's testimony and his witness. But the peculiar thing about John is that he says things that at, at first blush seem like a paradox. They say, or they're paradoxical. How can they be simultaneously true? The one who comes after me is before me. Uh, the one who comes after me about whom I'm, to whom I'm pointing, he's prior to me. He's, he's greater than me. These kinds of ideas, he ranks before me. Um, how can both ideas be true? And yet in that uh, paradoxical statement, John is introducing a, a basic and, and, and central component of his teaching, of his testimony, of his proclamation concerning the person of Christ. Here is one who really is a man, who really is coming after John, whom John bears witness to. And yet he's someone greater. He is greater than just a mere man. And John recognizes this too. Yes, he comes after me, John says, but he ranks before me, and he indeed was before me. So John's witness, his testimony, will become central to our understanding of the person of Christ. He'll also bear an important role in, in, uh, in, in terms of his testimony to the work of Christ, as we'll see in a future week. John goes on in verse 16, he says, For from his fullness we have all received a grace upon grace. Uh, in, in his commentary, D.A. Carson persuasively makes the case that that, word, that phrase grace upon grace uh, has that idea of a grace to replace a grace. And um, it's then explained in verse 17. So the idea is, is you're from, from the fullness of God, from the fullness of God the Son, think back to that, that, um, that phrase at the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth, now, from his fullness, it's the same terminology, we have all received grace upon grace or a grace to replace a grace. And so you say, well, what's John talking about? What grace is replacing another grace? And he tells you right, right away that the replaced grace is the law. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We see that language of grace and truth and we go back to the end of verse 14. You see a repetition. You see that. He is the one, you think back to again verse 14, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. His glory was seen and witnessed. His glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now from his fullness we have received a grace to replace a grace. It's grace and truth replacing uh, th this grace that is the law. Our, our natural inclination is not to associate the law with grace. And there's some merit to that. We don't think of the law as a gracious, uh, we, we think of it as opposite to grace, right? If you're trying to earn your salvation, you're trying to merit favor with God, 
um, by, by means of the law, that's not grace. But on the, uh, by, from a different perspective, the law is, in fact, a gracious gift of God. That God gave Israel such a righteous and just law as he gave them. He gave them this good gift. They didn't deserve, but he freely gave it to them and made a covenant with them uh, in that law. That indeed was a gracious gift. But it's a grace that has been superseded, a grace that has been replaced, as it were, by the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, and here we have then that distinction of the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Finally, John concludes, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And here again, read, you can read the only begotten God. It's the same terminology. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side. Uh, that language uh, renders quite literally the, this idea that who is in the bosom of the Father. It's a figurative way of speaking of the nearness that, 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 uh, that the Son uh, enjoys with the Father. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, or he has explained him. So you see, again, you come back to that idea of uh, the invisible God is being revealed in the incarnate Son. Purpose of the incarnation, to reveal God to man. To make known the God, the only God who is, who no one has ever seen. The only God who's at the Father's side and becoming incarnate, he's made him known. Now you think of seeing, you, you know, you think of revelation, right? And, and the idea that God is invisible, that we can't see him, that he's a spirit, he doesn't have a body like man, he's not corporeal. We cannot behold him, we cannot see him. But that doesn't mean we cannot know him. Right? It doesn't mean that we cannot come to understand who he is and, and, and um, what he has done. And here you can remember back to our study of the uh, doctrine of the Trinity in Matthew 11, 25 to 27, where Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father, those who, to whom he chooses to reveal him. The same idea we have the, 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 the Son, the only begotten God, he knows the Father. And here in becoming incarnate, he's making him known to us. Not in, in the sense that we can see him or we can say, that, well, this is what he looks like now. But in the sense that we can know true, truly who he is in his character, in his attributes, in his goodness. And in in, in primarily, I think, where our focus is drawn to, again, to those ideas of grace and truth. Uh, the, the idea, if you think of in the language of the Old Testament, of steadfast love and faithfulness. Same ideas being um, conveyed here. That God is the God whose loving kindness never ends. God is the God whose love is ever abounding, overflowing. Who, who loves his people uh, unconditionally. Whose mercy is, uh, and compassion is, um, is never ending. He's the God who is faithful to his promises, who is true in everything he says and everything he does. And here, the one through whom grace and truth has been received, in that, he is making known the Father. So to sum it all up, let me just say this uh, to, to, to clarify the points. Um, we're simply seeing from this text the truths that are crystallized in the uh, Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed and, and in the Chalcedonian uh, definition. 
Um, we're seeing that they do truly arise out of Scripture. We've seen that their importance uh, arises out of, uh, when we look to John's letter, his first letter, uh, their importance, the necessity of true belief concerning the Son of God, that arises out of Scripture as well. You see his work uh, conveyed, uh, at least under these broad categories in terms of revelation and redemption. Where are we going to go from here as we think about the incarnation? Well, I think, um, as I said last week, we won't do a complete and full exposition of John's gospel. And, and as I, I noted, you've done that before um, under, your, uh, under Pastor Pruitt. But what I do intend to do is to look at, um, at four comparisons that John puts before us in this prologue as we see them in the gospel. John sets in contrast uh, the word, that's Jesus Christ, he sets him in contrast with John the Baptist. And so next week we'll look at John the Baptist and, and the, the fourth gospel's testimony concerning John's ministry. We'll see that in John chapter 3 and John chapter 5, and then as well uh, rounding it out in John chapter 10. Then we're going to look at a comparison, a, a contrast between um, Jesus and um, and Moses as well. We see that there indicated in, in, um, in verse 17. The idea of the law coming through Moses, being given through Moses, grace and truth being given through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that theme throughout John's gospel as well. Moses comes up a lot. The law comes up a lot where people who reject Jesus think they're siding with Moses. Jesus is going to make the case that actually Moses bore witness to me, right? And um, they're going to uh, they're going to see that there's a contrast between Jesus and Moses, but they're also going to see that, like with John, so also with Jesus with Moses, John and Moses both are uh, occupying that same space as those who point forward to the coming of Christ. Then we're going to see a broader contrast. We're going to see a contrast between Jesus and mankind more generally. We have those two particular men in John and Moses. We're going to see that the fourth gospel also places Jesus in relationship and in contrast to man. And that's important when we think about the doctrine of the incarnation. Because we're looking at the idea that God the Son became a man. And John is going to show us in what ways he became like us. But also he's going to draw attention to the particular way in which he is uh, very much unlike us. Uh, namely, um, uh, he himself without sin, being without sin. And then finally, uh, um, where we begin in the prologue is where we end uh, with the relationship of um, the Son to the Father, the relationship of Jesus to God. How and in, in what way do we see him uh, presented as one with the Father and at the same time distinct from the Father? And that will round out our study of Christology over the next um, four or so weeks as we look at these various contrasts. So... Let me um, stop there and ask if there are any questions or comments. I know it's a small crowd tonight, um, but uh, any thoughts or questions or comments for the recording? Go ahead, Donna. You're thinking this. He became a man. No, he's born a man. We're saying the same thing. So what I, I'm using the language. So I, I, here, let me let me put it in this term, in this language. In John chapter one, John uses uh, two two different verbs that in English we can translate as to be. Uh, you say I am. 
I am William Brown, right? Or you could say, I became William Brown, right? Well, I, when, did I, when did I become William Brown? I became William Brown June 19th of 1986 when I was born and my parents named me William. So there's a being, I am, it's a state of being that is static. And there is a becoming that is dynamic. In the prologue, uh, uh, the English here, the translation, likes to use the language, uh, the word was, to render that static reality with respect to the sun, and that language of becoming to show those things which are dynamic. And so you see how it begins. In the beginning was the word. There's nothing dynamic about that. He was. It's an indication of his eternality. He was in the beginning. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's hard to do this in English, but the... Um, uh, because the uh, word order is important in our sentences. But if you look at the Greek, you, you can put these four clauses on top of each other, and you can see that the word was functions like an equal sign, and you alternate the word. Uh, you know, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And if we were to put the order like the Greek, and God was the word, that doesn't communicate rightly in English, but it works in Greek. And um, this one... He was in the beginning with God. And it's this beautiful uh, poetic representation of the static reality, that eternal reality, that the Son of God, who we call the Word of God, He is eternal. He always has been, always will be. So there's a that 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 static reality indicated. But there's also John, you know, in, in the literary uh, beauty of it all. Uh, indicates certain things that are that come to be, that come into existence. And he likes to use this other verb that indicates a coming to be. And so, for instance, when we read in verse 6, there was a man sent from God. Uh, the, this is where the English gets a little difficult, but in Greek it's sort of almost like there came to be a man. There came to be a man who was sent from God. And he'll go on to, uh, earlier, and he talked, spoke about all those things that had come to be uh, in, the, in the work of creation. Remember verse 3, all things were made through him. Literally rendered, all things through him came to be. And without him uh, came to be nothing, not one thing that came to be. That's a literal way of putting it. But he's using this language of came to be to indicate something that is uh, transient, that, that hasn't always existed and, and, and was not, uh, that, that is something a bit more dynamic. So when you come down to verse 14, the word became, the word came to be flesh. This is the extraordinary thing about the incarnation is that the one who was, without any shadow of change, who is eternally always in himself self-existent, in the fullness of time, he came to be flesh, or that's a way of saying he came to be a real human, a human being. Um, but it, I, we all, I'm saying the same thing. He was born of his mother. It's just that John in John chapter 1 uses the language of becoming or coming to be. Um, now to come step back and clarify what John is saying and what we mean as, as believers when we confess this truth. Remember the language of the, of, of the Athanasian Creed and the Chalcedonian definition. In this 
becoming flesh. He does not stop being God. He does not leave aside his divine nature. He doesn't, uh, uh, not even for a moment, not even for a second, stop being the eternal son of God. He takes something to himself. He doesn't leave something behind. He takes human flesh to himself so that human nature is now, that the, so that the Son of God, this, the, the one person who is Christ, exists eternally, not in just one nature, but in two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. That's the teaching of Scripture concerning the incarnate Son of God. And uh, so that's what we confess and we believe. So in the language, uh, just to, you know, to, to sum it all up, uh, what you're saying, he was born a human being, is essentially, we're saying the same thing. I'm just using the, the particular stylistic um, language that John uses in John chapter 1. Does that clarify or muddy the waters or help? Good. Other, other thoughts or questions? Is there anything else that, that's confusing or? Okay. Stephen, Matt, any questions or thoughts? I, if not, we'll close in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for your incarnate son. Thank you that you uh, sent him uh, to reveal yourself to us so that we might more fully know you, more fully know your love for us, more fully know your faithfulness, more fully know your, your nature and your, your grace and your, um, your perfect wisdom, more fully know all that you are. This indeed is a gracious revelation which we did not deserve. And yet, O oh Lord, we thank you that in the fullness of time and sending your Son, uh, you've made a way that through faith we might, um, we might come into a gracious inheritance through receiving this revelation that we don't deserve. We might also receive an inheritance that we don't deserve. And this too, O oh Lord, is a testimony to the uh, unfailing love that you have for us. We thank you and we praise you. We ask as we proceed in this study in the weeks to come that you would give us understanding and wisdom. Help us to know you more fully. Help us to um, present you more clearly to one another and to those whom we um, meet and with whom we have the privilege to share this gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.